Hello there, welcome back. Sorry, it's a bit late this month. Um, yeah, I wanted to do this um, episode this month, but last week was tricky. Uh, I was away playing, etc., etc. Um, I'll explain all that in a minute. But the first thing I wanted to do was for the first time ever on this podcast. I also just wanted to mention a. Um, not a sponsor, but a friend. Johnny Roadhouse Music. Um, I've been going to Johnny Roadhouse Music for a long time. And um, always been good friends of mine. And I just wanted to mention Johnny Roadhouse Music on Oxford Road in Manchester. If you need any, any of your musical needs. If you're a guitarist, bass player keyboard player, drummer, folk musician, you know, play different wind instruments, got great different departments there, over three floors I think, um, yeah, check them out, great people, um, always been a good place as well if you need to um, move on any musical equipment that you don't use anymore, you know, have a very fair kind of policy of value in instruments and uh, for selling on there's always lots of interesting drum kits and things in there anybody that knows the great Pete Lockett um, phenomenal rhythmist um, he's retired from playing and at the moment Pete's got I think they've got all of his stuff because Lee Mullen who's a very good friend of mine works and now on a Friday and Lee's worked there for a long long time um, Pete contacted Lee about getting rid of his stuff and so there's a lot of it in the shop at the moment and there's lots of really interesting uh, stuff, kits and all kinds of percussion stuff. I mean, I, I couldn't even begin to tell you. But anyway, you know, I'm not I'm not mentioning that particularly um, because of this. I'm just mentioning the shop and uh, they've been a long-time friend of mine. So um, it's not a sponsorship. It's just um, a mention. So uh, I... I have no arrangement with Johnny Roadhouse in any way, etc., etc. Just full disclosure. But um, great place if you're in, if you're a Manchester musician and you're around and about. Great place to go and get your stuff. One of the few places that stocks the Peter Erskine original, which I've always played. So it's um, I always go in there and I normally buy all of them. They normally have. Um, they always seem to have like four pairs left when I go in, and I always just yeah get in there. Just buy them all. Go and see, go and see Johnny Junior upstairs and twist his arm a bit for a bit of a deal. Uh, he's a good lad. So um, anyway, that's the end of that. Just thought I'm, I was going to mention him last month and forgot. So that's how useless I am. That's why it's not really a sponsorship thing, really. It's just, uh, as I say, a mention of a uh, good, of uh, good friends. Um, so I can't remember what I was saying now. Oh yeah, was this this so this podcast. Yeah, I wanted to do it last month. I was busy. Um, in fact, I've seen quite a lot of Lee because we've been doing the project together. And uh, the way this Friday again, down right down the south coast. Um, it's a good project. Uh, interesting project, disco classical thing with an orchestra with um, rhythm section and singers, and it's all kind of classic disco music and. A lot of great drummers on those tracks, so it's um, a lot of people. I think view that kind of music as it's quite kind of it's, got, it's, it's one vibe and it's one kind of thing. And actually, it's not. And, and and there's a lot of different 
tracks in that set which um, which you know some iconic drummers have been part of um, recording like um, Mr. Robinson for instance or uh, Tony Thompson you know etc etc anyway this podcast like I say I was planning to obviously planning to do the normal thing of last week and uh, it's a podcast I wanted to do um, because I'd, I'd, I'd had just coincidentally four conversations with four different drummers about things to do with health um, and these conversations yeah were I'd sort of mentioned um, having been through a health situation myself um, it was it was kind of noted um, by uh, two or three of them just to say oh it'd be nice if you shared that story you know uh, and it's a it's a tricky one because um, in some ways uh, and I feel I feel far enough away now from this uh, from this kind of episode in my life uh, to feel like it doesn't define me you know and I'm also you know there's lots of things in my life now that um that weren't that weren't in my life at that time as well not 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 lots of friends and 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 people but um certainly you know some significant people in my life and um and a lot of my work um like my job you know I didn't have my job when this when this thing was going on in my life and um because it's over it's just over 20 years ago now so uh, and it's not it's also not an anniversary of any sort bit sort because the anniversary was actually 2021 um because in 2001 was when I kind of was that was when I uh, ended all my treatment and was kind of given you know this kind of all clear thing um but yeah but you you, but you can end up um I think for some people, they, they, you end up feeling defined by something that's an illness that's quite significant, and, and I, I think I certainly, I did for a time, <clears throat> and also, I think there's still some people uh, that I know, um, people on gigs, and they tend to be more senior, who who still ask me about it, you know, and. Uh, there's a few people in my life now that I didn't know then find it very strange, you know, because they're like, why are they asking you about that, you know? And I, and I said, well, I think it's just their way of connecting, really, and then and, and people, you know, I think some people want to uh, just show a kind of an awareness and appreciation um, of that they're um, thinking of you in some way, which I, which, which I take, you know, I take positively. Um, but uh, so yeah but uh, it can be I think one can end up feeling yeah kind of defined by something and there'll probably be people listening to this who don't know anything about this either uh, and again it's you know there's that thing of um, you don't really want it to well I wouldn't have thought it changed anyone's view of you but you know it's just uh, this, this is quite an, it's quite an involved story but and also I'm I'm you know <laughs> sad to admit I'm a little bit superstitious as well 
so I have this kind of thing of like, oh, you know, if I sort of talk about it, then I don't know. It's pathetic, really, you know. But I, I am I have this kind of stupid, uh, irrational, superstitious side to me, which I kind of try and fight against, to be honest with you. And and just as two other things, I did write. There used to be a website called Life, which is the lymphoma information for everyone uh, website, which doesn't exist anymore. I uh, don't know whether it got taken over and, and was amalgamated into another um, cancer or lymphoma charity. I'm not sure. I kind of lost track, to be honest, because be, oh, and you, the reason why, you'll, you'll, when I tell the story, you'll know why. It'll make sense as to why one loses track of these things. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> oh, the other reason why I didn't record last week was because I had a cold and I was in bed last Sunday as well. Uh, but I'd also been busy, and I was really unwell, and I didn't. I don't want to record the. <laughs> I don't want to record these podcasts when I sound, you know, on the on the kind of Barry White side of things, you know, um, when I, when I, or just when I sound like bunged up. Um, so that was yeah. So I've still got a little bit of a cough. So apologies if I have a, a kind of bit of a coughing thing. I, I told you in this, but um, I'm perfectly well now. But I yeah had another strangely as well yeah another cold in quite a short amount of time neither were covid but that's but this cold lasted for a week and a half and it was really sort of got very unpleasant this last weekend the cough really started and i was off work on the monday i was in bed and then uh and then from tuesday i kind of got better so um but yeah there's a kind of superstition thing anyway blah 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 all that kind of stuff but just to say i did write uh i got asked to write um a store a story for them um a long time ago and i also was interviewed by um an old friend of mine's mother for um the manchester evening news um <coughs> back in 2000 and i don't know when it was probably after just after um uh, just after I mean, it was during when I was during when I was actually having treatment. I can't remember, um, but that was in in a newspaper, <coughs> and I still have a copy actually of that um, article somewhere. Um, and that was another interesting episode, which I'll get into during the thing. Um, yeah, journalism—it's an interesting thing. Um, I'm not saying I. Uh, don't trust journalism but it's anyway again it's in the story so i'm not going to give away i'm already giving away too much of the story before i even start which is typical but anyway it, the the story kind of begins and this is a this is one of those typical messages um not particularly to men but to people and it and i think men are worse uh, this than women. I, I do think that's. The, I do think there's some truth in that, from my experience, from literally my own, my own experience. Um, <clears throat> but there's also another side to this story of of, of kind of assertiveness and uh, and men kind of making um, making a decision beyond something that you would normally trust. You know, so in the timeline's kind of sketchy, but. When I was in my late 20s, I'd say 98, 97, 98, 
I always had these uh, in my neck. I always had these glands that were um, just had the. I could feel glands in my neck a lot. You know, they were always and and there were some that were there for ages and they were there for a long time. You know, months and months and months and months. Um, and there's some grey area about all this anyway. So. Um, you know, you can have, uh, I mean, I've just had a gland in my neck because I had a cold and it came up and it was sore and it went away. It's gone now. That's perfectly normal. So I don't want to freak anybody out who's got glands up, you know, and if, or they've had COVID and had glands or whatever, or, you know, or, or they've been ill recently and they've had glands up and they're still up. It, you know, that's a perfectly normal thing. Um, these were up for a long, long time. And then eventually I went to see a doctor. I, was, I mean, I was, very, I was very flaky in my late 20s. I was sort of living kind of a bit hand-to-mouth playing jazz gigs and really low-paid gigs and just was really just nowhere you know um in life in general living in a very carefree life um and i went to the doctor and he was a bit rubbish to be frank i'm being very generous here uh, I, I won't say what i really think but um this com this conversation ended uh, and this was the last time I actually saw this doctor, and actually the last time I spoke to him. The very end of it was, was he was basically, oh, we don't really, I don't really see any incident or anything. Maybe you should go and have an AIDS test. And it was this weird thing of because you know you, you know you tell your doctor you, you know what you do for a living and your lifestyle and stuff, and and he just made this weird assumption. You know, you know what I'm saying. So that was not great. So I switched doctors, and. Um, somebody who's been interviewed on this podcast actually um, knows the doctor I switched to because it was his doctor as well and he was a very he was a great doctor um, I'm not going to say his name but um, I went to him and, um, and it took me a while to switch because I you know I was trying to find a doctor and get on a list and it was even then in the, in the late 90s it was tricky Anyway, I went to see him, and we had this long sort of conversation about this thing. And I was just sort of saying these things have been up for ages, you know. And, and he said, "Well, you know, let's just let's just get you let's just get it checked out, you know. I'm going to refer you. It'll take ages because it's a bit slow at the moment, but you know, you're not ill or anything. Particular, you know, there's nothing, no illness that was alarming. You know, you seem well in other ways and stuff. Um, anyway, the referral took." two months and um and i went to see um went to see this uh guy um and they were quite relaxed about it but by the end of the conversation he was saying well you know the only way we really know if there's a problem is we need to um we need to take a little bit out of one of these things, you know. It's all sort of grim conversation. It's you know a biopsy, which is an operation for um, if you've got anything with with glands in your neck. There's no other way of uh, of doing it. You know, they have to make a, an incision in your neck and they have to take a sample out of the gland. So I had that done, and. Um, Funny, funny story actually attached to that. There was somebody that I knew at the time who was married to uh, a, a person I was playing with a lot, and um, and I'd actually known 
uh, for quite a long time through somebody else I was playing with before she married this guy who, who I was uh, working with at the time. And um, she was, uh, I think she's probably retired now, but she was a very senior anaesthetist in South Manchester. And uh, she knew the anaesthetist that I had when I had my biopsy done. And I had been in hospital for a long time and I was pretty, I was a bit freaked out about it all. And when I went in there, it was funny because he knew who I was because I'd spoke to her and I'd said, oh, I've got this thing. I'm really like, you know, she goes, oh, where are you having the thing done here? She said, all right. She said, I won't be your anaesthetist because I know you. Um, she said, but I probably know who it is, you know. And I was like, oh, well, you know. But anyway, she'd very kindly had a word. And this guy knew me and knew a bit about me, a bit about my drumming and stuff. So he was dead nice. And it was a classic thing of, you know, chatting to him, sticks his thing in your arm. And then like five seconds later, you're awake at the other end of it all which was exactly what happened, you know. And, uh, but it's funny that I think those people talk to each other, you know, because I think when they when they opened them up and had a look, when they opened me up and had a look in, and took the biopsy, I think they could see, I think they know, because they can see uh, if something's not right, you know. So anyway, I, I waited another, so that took two months. So this is four months now, two months for a referral, two months for... Um, to get his operation done and we're into the summer now kind of into the yeah we're into it was summer now of 20 um 2000 sorry yeah 2020 no 20 zero zero <laughs> the millennium um yeah uh summer of 2000 kind of i don't know may june-ish anyway i then um i had to go and get these results you know and this is where when you know when you know medical people and they um they they kind of talk to each other this is when this can be very helpful um somebody i played with a lot then somebody else i played with a lot i'm not naming any names here because it's it could all be taken as being slightly um <laughs> slightly dodgy but it's not uh, he came with me uh, because he was a doctor uh, he was now a musician but he was a doctor when I met him and and, and, um, and he came with me because I think he knew as well just because they didn't know what it was it was just that there wasn't some, there was something not right it was very you know and, and I had no inkling you know um, apart from during the um, sort of the run up in over that kind of winter into the spring and so this was all happening in between you know the referral took two months and then the biopsy took two months so you're talking four four and a half or months of time really so uh, during that time i had had multiple colds you know just kept getting a cold um but i smoked 40 a day which may surprise some people i was just living like you know pretty badly really just living in a very unhealthy way, gigging a lot, sleeping a lot in the day and staying up for long hours through the night and driving around all over the place, not really looking after myself. I had a girlfriend at the time who lived, she'd moved from Manchester down to London to Slough and I used to go down and drive down and stay with her in this terrible car. And uh, the whole thing was just like, it was all over the place really, but it was just sort of typical musician lifestyle really. Anyway, 
I went to see this consultant um, and uh, got the bad news, you know. Um, and um, they said, oh, you know, you've got this thing called Hodgkin's disease. It's a, it's a cancer of the lymphatic system. Um, but we're very quick to say, oh, you know, you've got, um, you've got like the best, or well, this, there's basically four. I think there's four types. It's like the the first, the first type is the most benign, actually, or the most treatable. And then there's the very, the most common is the second type, which is what I had. And then there's two other types. And the the fourth type is 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 very, it's not very nice at all. It's very hard to treat and nasty. Um. But you know, eighty percent plus of of, of young men, because it it's more, it affects more men than it does um, women, and and also it, there's an age. It's normally younger men who get this thing um, more common. It's quite rare. At the time, it was about fourteen hundred cases a year in the UK overall. You know, and even then, the population was was in the was in the mid fifty million. You know, so it's a t you know it's a small. It's a minority sport, as I call it, a bit like jazz. Um, so, yeah, this was, you know, obviously a bit of a shock. But look, the person I was with was, again, because uh, the, the consultant was very reassuring, but my friend was very reassuring. And they both said, you know, don't be under any illusions. The treatment's not going to be very nice. And, you know, but um, but the outcome should be should be uh, should be positive, you know. And um, and it's funny because the anaesthetist, uh, not the guy who uh, was did the operation, but the 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 wife of the friend had had, had hinted to me before I had this meeting. Uh, had said very similar thing, you know, um, basically saying in a kind of roundabout sort of way, you know, if if it is if it is possibly this thing the treatment's not very nice but the outcome will be fine you know uh so so it was massive shock obviously so you know bombshell thing um one of those you know life-defining moments and um and then so yeah there's and there's another part of there's another thing in this as well because um, my family has had a pretty not a great history with uh, with cancer so um my brother had um had a form of cancer when he was uh, 19 and um and he you know he's pretty poorly but he, he got he got through that um and then my mother um had breast cancer when she was in her late 40s when i was 20 well, she had it three times, and then the, the third time was the was the terminal, um, was terminal. Sadly, so in ninety, she passed away in ninety five when I was twenty five, and her mother had had it as well. There was a big, big genetic thing about, you know, it was a, it was definitely a genetic thing and quite common. And um, her mother died when she was when my mum was about nine, so she was in her late thirties. My mum passed away in her late forties, uh, and then there was me now. Uh, now at age 30, um, well, I was 29 actually. I was 30 in um, in the November after this. So um, yeah, it was, so it was pretty tough for my dad. Um, and and as 
some of you probably know who've listened to previous podcasts, my dad passed away in 2019 and my dad died of leukemia. He had AML, very horrible type of uh, leukemia, which very rare as well. Um, so all four of the sort of immediate family in my family have had, um, sadly, have had experiences with uh, with cancer of one sort or another. Um, so just to put that in, that in kind of a bit of context, that this, what happened at that point, the cancer thing wasn't, you know, like as a, in my life, it wasn't a shock to me because I'd been through, you know, cancer before. I'd been with my mum when she passed away and, my, and I'd been around, I, I wasn't around my brother a lot when he was ill and my brother was kind of, where I was living away at school and I was in London and so I wasn't at home a lot at that time, but I was around him a bit and he was poorly, you know, but again, you know, I was I was around, and then he, he was ill. He was ill a couple of years after something happened, and he was in hospital then. And I was around then, and and my mum was a nurse as well, so the kind of medical thing was also, you know, um, always uh, there was always kind of medical things going on in discussions in the family and stuff at home and stuff. So, um, so so it wasn't a huge. It wasn't like a devastating thing of like cancer. What is cancer? I knew I knew a lot about treatments. I knew a lot about you know anti sickness drugs um, and uh, I mean literally the names of the drugs and stuff because my mum had particularly my mum had I remember my mum taking them and uh, and uh, uh, so that was kind of um, that was kind of that that moment was very much defined by luckily having somebody with me who was kind of reassuring and also the fact that you know I, I'd been through been through sort of um cancer thing before but obviously this was happening to me it wasn't happening to somebody else which is very different and um you know those moments in life where something is um it's it's you and it's not something that's happening to somebody else it's not something that's happening on the tv it's not something that's happening in your imagination it's happening this is real um those moments you know those moments in life really do um they can define um they can define you in some ways how you how you respond to them you know um and i was always g'd on from the beginning with this thing of you know you've got this thing you're gonna the, you're gonna have treatment and the treatment's normally pretty successful over 80 percent successful i wasn't thinking about the, the you know the the 17 percent uh whatever it, was, it might be 80 i think it was like 82 percent of the time i wasn't thinking of the 17 or 18 percent of people it wasn't successful for um anyway so then I had to go and um, I had to go and have a um, CT scan because I had this thing I kept getting colds and um, they were sort of a bit concerned about what that was connected to. They obviously had this diagnosis and uh, anyway, when I had the CT scan done, this revealed uh, what had really been going on for a while, you know, which you can't see is that um, around one's trachea inside the, the lung cavity, um, we have a lot of lymph glands that live around our trachea and um, when people get lymphoma a lot of the time when people are in the sort of stage two disease um, 
the staging's in four stages, so just this is not very interesting, but just in case you don't know anything about it. Stage one is the glands that you, in your neck, um, generally. Uh, and um, I think maybe the armpits as well. We have a lot of glands in our armpits. And then the stage two is normally this thing called mediastinal, which is the thing around the trachea where um, the... the, the, the the glands either side it can be one side mine were either side and they were pretty equally growing actually um, but they just they just grow and they grow around and press against your lungs essentially uh, and um, eventually if it's un you know untreated that's the thing where people get very poorly very quickly because they end up not being able to breathe and there was a guy uh, when I first started my treatment who was uh, who was further on than me and um, yeah I'll talk about that anyway you know in a bit but um that's above so the stage the stage and there's the stage a and b so you get one a one b what a is non-symptomatic and b is symptomatic so one of the classic symptoms for hodgkin's for this type of lymphoma is is these night sweats where the disease while you're asleep is kind of raging away inside and so you wake up soaking wet um, you don't feel ill or anything, but you just wake up soaking wet. And I'd not had any of the, those sort of symptoms for a long, long time. And at the time when I got this scan done, it was a bit of a weird situation because um, I'd had these colds and I had this cough. I was coughing all the time, just this tickly cough. And it was, um, and that was to do with the, what was going on inside the chest cavity, you know. But I wasn't. I didn't have any other symptoms. I didn't have these night sweats. I wasn't showing disease symptoms, you know. So, but I was classed as two B anyway because of these other symptoms. But the main one they normally classify it with is this, is the night sweats. This kind of uh, the thing of active disease while you're asleep, you know. Um, and it's literally a thing of like you wake up and you have to towel your whole body off. You know, it's like it's it's. Uh, very similar to think what you know women get when they have menopause and things like that. It's, it's and it's things that go on when you when the body's resting, you know. Um, but um, and I had had those symptoms along. I didn't, you know, I, I don't really even remember them. But um, <clears throat> so that was um, so I got staged and I had these. Um, the, the glands inside my chest, I, I had two reference points that were really useful. When I had, when I got the scan done, I went to see, um, when I went to see the consultant, where I was referred, um, initially I, I went to South, I went to Withenshaw Hospital, and, and I had my, and that was where I got my results. In fact, I was, I was in Withington actually, they have the, the South Manchester of like the hospitals all over different sites, all over South Manchester, Withenshaw, Withington, and, uh, and then there's the Manchester Royal, and then there's Christie's Hospital. This is the cancer place, which is where I ended up being treated. Uh, that phenomenal place, amazing, amazing place, amazing people. Um, and I'd ha and I'd obviously been there before with you know when my mum was ill, so I, I you know I knew the hospital, uh, and I lived really close to the hospital as well. Very luckily, I lived um, 15 minutes walk uh, from the hospital, so. Um, that was fortuitous. Uh, I wasn't having to travel. Um, so, so yeah, that was. Um, I was trying to get the sort of next point of the story. Really, 
I got referred to a guy called John Radford, who um, who became a professor quite early on, actually, once I'd, uh, just early on in, in my kind of relationship with that team. And um, he was a very, very, very nice guy, a very, obviously, very bright guy. Um, but that whole team of people, the, 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 the lymphoma team, um, there was kind of three main people that I dealt with, and um, there was him. There was a, a nurse specialist who I, who I still speak to occasionally, particularly when COVID was happening. I had to seek some advice, and uh, normally, and and she was a person I always ring. And then there was a, a consultant, a registrar consultant, doctor who I also um, had a lot of contact with. Who was great. They were all brilliant. They're all super positive people. Very, very straight talking, clear people but very nice with it you know um, bedside manner in those situations counts for a lot and i had uh, i had two extreme situation uh, two extreme experiences with that kind of situation which i'll come to later uh, which again were pivotal points within the journey you know um but i got referred to him met him and um I had a very good meeting with him initially and, and and he was quite surprised about me not being symptomatic and they couldn't feel things like my spleen and stuff and um and my my, and my armpits no I had no glands in my armpits um that were obvious or anything it was just this um, the things in the neck and then what couldn't be seen and funnily enough, the neck hadn't changed for a long time, but the ne the things in the neck had suddenly started to change quite quickly. And uh, and right at the beginning of my treatment, I found new I found new glands in my neck which I'd not felt before, you know. So this thing was obviously was um, was going on. But again, I didn't have the night sweats, and I, I don't know whether I put that down to the fact that my lifestyle was so shambolic, and uh, I wasn't really asleep at night. <laughs> I was asleep kind of in the day. Well, you know, in the very, very early mornings, because I was gigging and getting home at 2 or 3 a.m. and stuff. And and even this time, I was still carrying on gigging. I, I, you know, I couldn't afford to not gig. But I did, I did eventually, I had to kind of, I had to go to the um, welfare, you know. I had, to, I had to pull the plug on a lot of things and just, you know, spend time not worrying about the pressure of, you know, gigging and all that kind of stuff and earning money. I, 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 I decided to... Um, yeah, to go down that avenue. Uh, I didn't totally stop gigging, um, but most, nearly all the gigs at that time didn't. They just didn't pay any money at all. It was more, it was just playing more for the love of playing, you know. Um, but the sort of gigs that I was doing that were further away and were a drive away and were, you know, were where I was earning any money. They, they, I wasn't doing any of that stuff really, but. Uh, but ended up having to go on this thing called income support, you know, and, and also onto the housing benefit for a while because I was just wasn't wasn't able to work, you know, uh, especially when the treatment started and stuff, and and some other things happened. Um, but yeah, I got referred, and uh, this guy, uh, I, well, he's Professor Radford now. He, you know, he had. Um, you know, he had like an X-ray of my chest and uh, and, and also uh, pictures of the scan, and he had a tape measure because it's all the size of it's all uh, actual size, you know. And it was ten point three 
centimeters. Uh, uh, um, uh, yeah, 10.3 at the time, and this was. So we're putting this into context. This was um, kind of in the August. Now we're into the August, and so a number of things were happening quite quickly. And and he was involved in this um, this trial. This 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 trial, which was. Um, quite interesting trial i basically opted for all the trials um when i was ill i there was nothing i didn't say i, I wouldn't to be involved with so the first trial i was offered was a blind uh, treatment trial they had two main line treatments for hodgkins at the time um and um they said you you can either just go on this treatment called abvd or you can go into this blind study where we'll either give you ABVD or this other new, uh, it wasn't a new treatment, it's just a different co uh, combination of drugs. They've said, you know, we, we're looking at, um, we're just looking at data from both of them. Uh, there's no, you know, one isn't better than the other, et cetera, et cetera. We're just looking at different demographics, different stages, all that stuff. We're trying to gather data what do you want to do and i said i'll go for the trial so i ended up getting i just got the abvd anyway so i got the you know if i hadn't gone for the trial i got that treatment abvd is four drugs and the treatment was given um two drugs every two weeks so uh, you get the f uh, i can't remember at, um, the names of some of them now but the first two were the first week and the second two were two weeks later so you you have in this treatment was was bi-weekly, um, twice a month, um, and um, that was the beginning of that. So I was I was slated for treatment to start uh, in October. In the meantime, they said, "Oh, there's this other trial we're doing. It's a testicular um, stem cell trial." And they were doing it with a, with with ovaries as well. It was an ovarian trial, similar um, similar kind of thing. But what they were doing with the with the ovary trial was taking eggs from uh, from the ovary and freezing them for for female patients who would have chemotherapy and potentially not be able to you know not to, the the chemotherapy would damage the ovary and they would no longer be able to produce produce eggs. The the, the testicular one was was uh, most. Um, most men that have chemotherapy of any type end up being sterile so they were taking um they were taking the stem cells uh, or cells from the testicle and freezing them and then they were re-implanting them into into the person after treatment had finished uh, i think I, I i to be honest with you at the time i didn't even really understand when the when the, there was going to be a follow operation where they, where they would put these uh, stem these cells or these you know these things that they would take back into me, um, and I think it was after they'd sort of uh, definitively shown that I was sterile. Anyway, I opted for that. I went in hospital for it. Uh, I was not. I just wasn't very well by this time. I was. I had another cold. I was coughing. I was just not very well. I remember, I remember, I went in overnight, and in the morning, they were, they were these two guys, these consultants, came to see me, and this nurse, and they were all like scratching their head, going, 
are you really well enough to have this operation? And I was like, I don't know. It's up to you, really. And they pulled the plug on it. So I never, I never had the trial. Sadly, I never had the operation. Um, so that was kind of that. Um, and then I went in to see a consultant again. And then uh, when then the treatment dates were, were you know, had the treatment. So the treatment started in October. And it was a six-month treatment. As I say, every two weeks, uh, two drugs every two weeks. Um, and the treatment started, and it was what it was, you know. Um, it was pretty grim. And so every, on the Monday, I'd go in, go into these clinics. And, and, and I met loads of amazing people in these clinics, really amazing people, really. People that are in a similar situation to me, people that had non-Hodgkin's, which is much more complex type of lymphoma with lots and lots more types of sub um cell types of um of malignancy very um i think there's like 24 or 21 different types and a lot of them are much harder to treat and uh, but there was a couple of people two or three people that i met that i really remember there was an old lady i met who'd had hodgkins three times and she was having a third kind of treatment and she's in her 70s you know and she was really nice I used, to, I used to speak to her every Monday she was a very very nice lady and uh, very positive you know um, there was a guy who was having uh, he, was, he was diagnosed at the same time as me he, he was from up Blackpool way and he was in a wheelchair and he was further on than me he had the same mediastinal disease in the chest but he he couldn't breathe well and he couldn't walk anymore um, and he, so he was in the wheelchair, and um, and and just as a comparison thing between the in the August when I had the initial meeting with um, Prof Radford, and they measured this thing between then and my first treatment day when I was X-rayed, um, the thing had grown by two point three, twelve point six or seven centimeters now by now across. So things things were moving on in in the chest cavity pretty quickly, you know, and that's why, you know, that's why I was coughing more and I had these colds and just felt didn't feel great. Um, I was also, you know, I was also quite thin, uh, but I'd always been thin when I grew up. Anyway, a lot of people know me now. Obviously, know that I'm quite a big person, tall and uh, not slim, shall we say? Um, even though I've lost, you know, quite a bit of weight over the last couple of years, I, you know. Um, I was always hovering around the ten and a half, eleven stone, and um, and that continued into my thirties, you know, up to this point. And yeah, and so I, I didn't have a lot on me. I didn't have a lot in reserve, shall we say? Um, but yeah, so so I was, yeah, I wasn't I wasn't particularly well. So that was all kind of going on. Uh, there was him, and then there was a lad who was a lot younger than me, who. Um, I got to know uh, more later, and I'll tell you more about that, that story as we go along, that bit of the story as we go along. Um, so I had this, initially I had the treatments, and then I came, um, I'm not really going into too many other details really, it's all pretty boring, it wasn't very pleasant, um, and it was obviously a big adjustment in life, and um, I had a couple of people around me at the time that were very, very... Um, very supportive um another person who i've uh, interviewed the same person i was talking about before who i've interviewed 
a couple of times on this podcast. You probably work out that out by there's only one person on, who's had two things on this podcast. He was very, very supportive at the time and was, um, helped me out a lot through this whole thing. I was very grateful to him, or still am, but at the time particularly. Um, but yeah, it was a big adjustment in life, you know, big, big adjustment. So um, I had my first three months, basically. And at, at the just at the end of the three months, um, so we're kind of at October, November, November to December and into January, uh, so two, three things coincided with each other quite quickly. One, I gave up smoking finally. So the, this is um, an important thing I think I would share with you um, is that when I um, when I got diagnosed, I mentioned I smoked, and the consultant said you should try and stop. You know, and um, and it was you know I really thought about it, and then this uh, nurse specialist who I spent a lot of time with, we had a lot of really interesting conversations about smoking, and um, she had some very compelling arguments that were compelling shall we say um and uh, anyway i'd finally decided to stop but when i was having my chemo i used to talk to the nurses who do the chemo and and their view was quite different their view was you just don't want to do anything that's going to make life more stressful at the moment you know they said you know if you if you can't stop just you know you don't don't get stressed about it but i'd had i had quite a few conversations and then i decided to stop and then the next thing I did was I went for some hypnotherapy. Um, and the hypnotherapy was the thing that really worked because I never I never smoked again. So I stopped smoking in January 2020, uh, 20, 2001, I can't say that. January 2001, I finally stopped smoking. I've never smoked a single cigarette since. I've smoked a few cigars and things and bits and bobs, but the hypnotherapy really worked. But... I was the first patient that I went to to this hypnotherapist who'd actually stopped. I'd only stopped about a week, but I'd made this real decision to stop. And then I went for the hypnotherapy, and the, and I can tell you when I walked out of that session, I knew I wasn't going to smoke again. I just had no connection to cigarettes at all. Bizarre. It was very very strange, and it's never changed. So, and I was, I smoked a lot, you know, I really, I, I was what you call a professional smoker. I enjoyed smoking, actually. I, I liked rolling my own cigarettes. I liked, I liked the little ritual of that and just the whole thing of um, anyone, you know, anyone that lives in Manchester, north of England, that's damp air, just that thing of having something warm going down into your body, warming you a little bit. It's miserable and cold. They'll know, you'll know what I mean. That's not an advertisement to smoke, by the way. It's, it's a truly terrible, awful habit. Don't do it. Um, but anyway, so I gave up smoking, and then I went in um, for some for the treatment. And every time I went for a treatment, I had to have my blood taken. They look at your blood counts. They look at you know your red and your white cells and your platelets because the chemo is obviously is obviously affecting how your bone marrow is producing those three essential things. Anyway, this thing came back. They said, sorry, your white cell count's too low this week. You're going to have to wait a week for treatment, um, and you're going to have to take this thing, this human growth factor thing that you're going to have to self-inject. And I, it was this, all of this sounded hideous to me. Um, anyway, 
I did this thing. I'd, I, had to, I had to take these things, these prescription home. I had to put them in the fridge. And then on the Thursday, um, I had to start injecting. And hopefully, the Thursday, Friday, the Saturday and the Sunday, I had four injections. By the Monday, this human growth factor would be sort of pushing more white cells out of the marrow and it would be turning things around. And um, so I did that. And on the... Um, on the night that the first day um, that I did this thing, I uh, woke up in the middle of the night and I was had these night sweats, horrendous kind of, you know, really not had them for years, you know, not, well, a long, long time. And um, didn't think much of it. And then the next night, the same thing again. And so I thought, oh, maybe it's something to do with these injections, you know. Same thing on the Saturday, Sunday night, nothing. Went to the hospital on the Monday, had uh, my bloods done, everything was fine. And then went, and then I saw the, the prof, I had a chat with him, and I mentioned right at the end of this consultation before I was going to have my treatment, I said, Oh, by the way, I've had these uh, night sweats, you know. And he was like, Oh, when, when did that, when were they happening? I said, Well, like Thursday, the day I first day I had the injection, you know, and, and he said, Oh right, that's that doesn't sound um, that doesn't sound good. Um, I just want to can we? I just want to have an X. Can we just have an X-ray before you have your treatment? So I went off and had an X-ray. And uh, and just to put it into context there, the the the, the hospital things on a Monday. I would go in the hospital at nine, and I would just be there till seven or eight o'clock at night. You just go to the morning clinic. You get your blood done. You sit around, wait for the results, which takes. You know, a while you've got, you know, it's hundreds and hundreds of patients. Uh, they do an amazing job of turning it around. You know, even in like hours. You normally, you know, you'd have thought these things would take weeks normally, but you know, and anybody goes to, you know, anybody goes to the um, to the doctors has a blood test. You know, you normally go wait. You get you get the results two or three weeks later, don't you? Well, they're turning this thing around in an hour and a half. You know, and then I, I went off for this. Um, went off for this. Uh, x-ray and I came back with the x-rays I just give him stick him in the envelope and he gave him to me went back and he put him up on the thing and I was with him and he was he had the tape measure out again and he was looking at this thing and I'd had an x I'd had an x-ray after four treatments and after four treatments so this was we're talking late November um early December the cough had gone and uh, this x-ray had shown shrinkage um, and you have to take these you have to take these pills when you first start the treatment which which help with your um, with help with you pissing basically because the basically the, the the tumor breaks down and it can really destroy or damage your kidneys you know you've got to be very careful so it's all grim sorry it's a really hideous kind of thing but uh, I'd had I've been through all that stuff and 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 this thing really showed shrinkage, you know. So the, the the I can't remember what the measurements were, but I I saw that X-ray and could see like, oh, I can't actually see a thing anymore. And they, he was they were really pleased, you know. Responding to treatments, what you always want with with cancer, whatever's going on, any response to treatment is always positive. Um, whatever the situation you're in, it's when you have no response to treatment when things are not great. But he was looking at this. 
x-ray and he had the tape measure out and he wasn't happy he said i'm sorry i'm not happy here something doesn't look right this doesn't look like the shrinkage has continued in the same way i'd have expected especially compared to and i was like oh right well what does that mean he said we're gonna have to change tack here you know and this is the only time during the whole treatment the whole, the whole thing where i genuinely thought that things were not going to have a positive outcome you know and um and it was i asked i asked him straight up in that moment because i felt it was important to just i just said you know am i going to die is that what you're saying you know and he said no no we just have to change tack there's other options but this is what i think we need to do you know so that was a bit of a disaster that day i didn't have the treatment and uh, they swat, switched my treatment to this new um, treatment, which is what they call VAPEC-B, which is a pre-stem cell transplant treatment. And I was basically, I was slated for a stem cell transplant. My own stem cells, not, not somebody else's, but that was going to mean a completely different thing. I, the treatment wasn't going to be over by the end of the, the winter. I was going to be going into the summer I was going to end up in hospital. I was going to end up having this stem cell transplant, high dose chemo. I was going to have to have um, white cell harvest and um, have it all frozen and all that stuff. Um, blah blah blah. Anyway, uh, and the treatments went to weekly. The VAPEC B thing was a weekly treatment. Now the weird thing about this was, I was less ill on this treatment. Um, the ABVD I felt very unwell for a lot of it the anti-sickness drugs were, were very very good but i felt dog sick rotten a lot of the time you know after the treatment just for a couple of days but you know and then there'd be sort of the week after where things are, where everything started dropping all the kind of you know almost all the sort of um, the white cell and the red cell stuff and you just get tired and but when i had the vapet b one of the things you have to have on Vapet B is um, high uh, doses of steroid prednisolone, and uh, it's um, I was on a phenomenally high dose because they kill lymphocytes basically, um, and and so this kind of pre-transplant uh, treatment um, was going to basically involve um, this this specific regime of this Vapet B with this high dose of prednisolone, and then and then you have um, Again, a load of human growth factor injections and then this stem cell harvest. And I went through all that. Um, and then we got through to, um, we were then through to kind of May, um, late April. Yeah, yeah. And, and I was waiting for a bed then, basically waiting for this, for a bed to go in. Um, and then I, I got, I got, um, I got a place in, in in the hospital eventually in the May, and um, and this was the this was like another again the, the time stem cell transplants were clinical trials. You had to sign a load of dodgy paperwork saying you were you know you basically if you died tough, um, but it was there was no option anyway. So um, I mean that was the decision I made you know to to, to be treated and to um, to go through all that. So I went in hospital. Um, and I was going into isolation and uh, the big problem at the time for me was I was I'd kind of gone through quite a long period of 
of um, being very sensitive to claustrophobia, sensitive to being in enclosed spaces, and it, and it's been something that had gone on for quite a long time, few years, you know. I really struggled with flying. <laughs> I used to avoid going in lifts. Um, these kind of sort of irrational, but also in what they call intelligent fears, which is a nice way of uh, kind of putting it. But the flying one is one where where I'd spoke to a couple of psychologists and they said, you know, there's this 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 thing of sort of intelligent fear where you, you know, you're you're sort of your the claustrophobia is exacerbated by <coughs> thinking about the things that could go wrong in that situation and not being able to escape them, you know. Uh, my thing was like, mm, it just feels to me more I it's just I can't get off, you know, I can't get out and and it's just that thing of you know, being trapped, feeling trapped, you know. So you know what's coming here, don't you? Because they were saying, you're going to have to go in this room. And um, once the treatment starts, once we're about three days in, you're not going to be able to leave that room until your white cell count comes above two and that the neutrophils become above 50% of that of that two. Um, because you potentially can could die of infection, you know, because you won't have an immune system. Um, and things are slightly different now with stem cell transplants. So if anybody's having going through that at the moment or knows anyone out, I mean, Christie's, for instance, when my, when my dad was ill, uh, talking to one of the um, one of his consultants about when I when I had the stem cell thing, she was saying, yeah, they do them as day, they do them as outpatients now. Because they know a lot more about the immune side of things. People don't have to stay in. They, they, and it's not about saving money with the rooms. It's about actually avoiding this inconvenience for patients who just, you know, they can't, um, they don't want to be stuck in hospital for weeks. They'd rather be at home, you know. And the fact that they've found that the immune system, um, as long as the home's clean and there's certain things are in place, you know, um, I don't think in all situations they can. But anyway, I had to go in this room and I was freaking out about it. I was more freaked out about it than than the rest of it. I was like, I'm gonna, I know I'm gonna start freaking out, you know. So I was very lucky. I um, I got referred to a um, to a psychologist and had some uh, had some therapy, and uh, I was very lucky with the person that I got. She was amazing. Uh, and um, so subsequently, not to go into any details about that, but subsequently, I had no problems at all when I went in. Um, there's a couple of other reasons maybe why as well, but the main thing was I'd prepped this. I'd done something about this problem. And again, it's just that thing of of um, reaching out for help, which was something I was very bad at. And it was something that I discovered during the psychotherapy that um, I'd had real problems with in my life, you know, because of leaving home. Uh, when I left home, essentially at fourteen, and went to live at boarding school, and and uh, became quite independent of my family, and and kind of got got into this thing of not being very good at asking for help in situations where I really needed it. So um, I kind of learned quite a lot about myself during this period. Anyway, went in, had this treatment, had the high dose chemo, five days. You have two, th four, three drugs, but two of them are given on um, on the first four days, and then the last drug is is this um, kind of based on this original carmustine, this original this kind of thing for the must the mustard gas. Um, I think it's based on what, how mustard gas works. Um, 
sort of a grim history of some of this chemotherapy stuff because you know they noticed in mustard gas victims in the second world war they saw this thing of low uh, white cell levels and uh, that that kind of um that information fueled um early chemotherapy uh, treatments and um and they realized that the carmustine based on this kind of mustard gas uh, i don't i don't know a lot about the chemical side of it but something that's based on the same kind of um, construct uh, helped treat uh, lymphoma so i had um, effectively had a controlled dose of mustard gas when i had my um, not in a gas form in a in a in a, in a, in a intravenously but that was the final drug and then you were uh, sitting wait you know and then after a few days i had um the these stem cells that i'd had harvested months before um there was yeah there was quite a long gap between my that vapid b treatment and the stem cell because there was no room for me so i had to end up having another treatment one more drug because they were kind of worried that i was I'd, I'd gone without treatment for quite a few weeks so they gave me this consolidation treatment um, which was an extra dose of one of the one, one of the most unpleasant um i can't remember the name of that one of the most unpleasant drugs in that of that cocktail um, wasn't very nice um and i think that was, the, that was the most ill after that was because i'd been sort of not had treatment for a bit and i had to have this dose of this drug in this big you know in a really big um, syringe horrible red thing red drug um but anyway, I got into hospital, and then I had my my cells back, um, which um, a friend of mine, uh, again, I've previously mentioned in this uh, story, he was with me at the time, and this guy was trying to get these bloody things down this tube. He was trying to flick it because there was air bubbles in it. It was so funny. We were both sat staring at this, at this because um, it was going in through this line in into me I had, I had, a, I had a center line um one of these hickman line things i had two of them in actually and one in my arm as well pick line lots of problems with um the hickman lines i had i had two septicemia episodes during my chemo so i was in hospital twice with line infections i was very that was when i was at most poorly really shockingly high 40 41 degree body temperature shaking and paracetamol is the only thing that could stop that and then horrific these horrible um antibiotics grim grim antibiotics but luckily both times i mean i was an inpatient for five six days very inconvenient just because you just can't do anything you just got to sit in hospital um but i'd had this this the line i had in for my um the line i had in for my transplant was a new line because the, the, the line that i had in before that I, again it had gone I'd, had gone weird twice and given me this septicemia twice this kind of blood poisoning thing so um i had this brand new line in um and i didn't have that in for too long they took it out not long after my uh my transplant which was great so i'd lived with this thing that sits on your um you know just sits on a thing on your chest for months you know um it's not great but it's a massive it, i had no veins or anything but at the time i'd had all this chemo i've got thready veins anyway being a redhead it's quite a common thing of apparently of redheaded males of thready veins i um yeah so 
ended up with this thing of uh, rubbing the lines in, and they're a godsend because they can just put drugs in out of you really easy. And um, these cells are supposed to be in really quick. They, they come out of this kind of deep freeze thing, and then they and then they give them to you, and then they, then you just have to sit and wait. Then I'm sitting and waiting and waiting and waiting every day, blood tests every day, and then one day the nurse came in and she said, "We've got your results back." There's there's movement, she said, and, and this is really good. You know, you you've only been in hospital two weeks and three days, and you're normally in for a month. And I was like, all right. She said, yeah, the consultant's going to come and see you today. Um, you might have some good news. So I was like, all right, okay. So the consultant came to see me and said, look, if we get this reading tomorrow, um, and things carry if because this is what should happen with the trajectory of the drug with the, the trajectory of the readings having had you know post having had the drugs and then having had the um having had your stem cells back because obviously you can see that the stem cells have grafted to marrow and you're producing something again he said that if things fall on this trajectory you can go home tomorrow and i was like oh wow that's brilliant he said yeah you'll be the fastest person we've ever had in and out so far you're the, this you'll have you're our world record of two weeks and four days uh, i think it was in the end anyway next day i had my blood test done and they sent me home so i went home and um i mean i was borderline you know i i, I was on borderline needing transfusion i, I did have one platelet transfusion um, that was the only tra blood transfusion I ever had, but I just had platelets, never had any red and the white. They can't transfuse, obviously. But um, I went out that night when I got home. Uh, I went out with a friend of mine. I just went to the pub around the corner because I did have an immune system. It was um, the neutrophils had got to be at fifty percent, even though my my count was like two point one. I did have some neutrophils and. And I just, I just wanted to be outside. I wanted to be out. Of there. I didn't want to be stuck in the house. I just wanted to. And I had half a Guinness and felt absolutely leathered, you know, because um, I wanted to try and get the iron up in the blood. You know, I thought, oh, a pint of Guinness, but I just had the half. I felt really, really, you know, out there. Um, and then I was just kind of. That was then the recovery thing, really. So it was like the next two and a half months was just going back every uh, going to hospital every week and having my bloods done and then got the line out so then um i was just i was then slated for radiotherapy which is what they always did if you had mediastinal disease in the chest they always irradiated your chest so uh, that was due for the september of 20 2001 um and and that kind of happened. And so there's just another little sub story in this um, that's kind of sad um, and also was a really illuminating kind of thing with, with how good my the team of people I had around me. Uh, and this is and this is not to say that the person the, the person I was referred to when I had my transplant, I had to have a, I had to go to a different consultant because it was, it was effectively a different department. The adult leukemia unit, the ALU, was where you went in to have your isolation. So I was still under the registrar and the team. They were essentially, you know, 
they were keeping an eye on what was going on with me but I had to go and see a different consultant and he didn't have a great bedside manner and and um at the time there was a lad um who I got to know quite well who's quite a bit younger than me who's 20 and he um he was having a transplant as well. He, he's ever, he had he had the same thing I'd had. He'd had a failed kind of main line, and they, and he was you know he was slated for transplant, and and he was in the same time as me. He was a, he was a week ahead of me. Um, but sadly, he never looked very well. Um, and when I was in, uh, right at the beginning of my my my. Um, transplant i went down to see him you know because i was still allowed out of the room the first two or three days even though i was on the on the high dose drugs i could i could go down the corridor and and i went in to see him and um he was a week ahead of me and he was having problems with his mouth and stuff and he wasn't very well and he looked he looked really poorly you know but he got out he got out after me i was out super quick and he was in for quite a while two months because he really struggled with his um with his getting his blood counts up you know so he was struggling with his immune system uh, but very sadly he passed away um in the in the autumn after that so um that was a very sad thing but we both had very negative experiences with this um, consultant who who basically said that you know people that have failed main line their likelihood of staying disease free was um was not very good basically uh and this is one of those things where when somebody frames something in the wrong way to you it can have a really negative impact upon how you feel the outcome of something is and, I, and i'll give you two sentences here which were um the first one was framed to me by this consultant he said oh, oh most patients um who've had a failed main line um after after transplant the the disease will normally return within two years you know and that was that was the thing that i was grappling with for a long time whereas the reality was the um most people who have a failed mainline treatment and go on to have transplant, if the disease was to return, it will be it will be within the first two years. And as it's obvious to you listening to this now, the difference between those two statements. Now, uh, to put this into context, I didn't hear that second statement for five years, so um, I'd lived with this. Um, and there's a reason why I heard it after five years, which I'll tell you about in a minute. But I'd lived with that kind of thing hanging over me, particularly the first two years. And I was waiting and waiting, you know. I was just, after two years, I was waiting, just waiting for this for, to be ill again. You know, I just thought, well, I'm, this is this is what's going to happen. But um, but my main consultant, uh, Prof Radford, and that, and that whole team were, were, had a very different view. They were they were they they said we've had very very good results with the transplants. All the nurses that I spoke to, you know, they said, oh, we don't normally see um, a lot of you, a lot of you lot back, you know, because the transplants are, are, are getting really good results. So it's just something about the way that he uh, explained this thing in this consultation. And it wasn't a particularly nice consultation. He didn't have a great bedside manner. Um, 
But the reason why I've remembered that now is because I went to have my, when I went to have my radiotherapy, I had to be I had to be um, transferred to another different consultant again um, for my radiotherapy, and he was really nice, and that team was really nice. Um, I always remember that team when they were X-raying my chest and they were trying to work out where they were going to put these tattoos on me because they tattoo you and they're permanent. So did I have to put the did I have to mark you up every day because it means you can have a shower, you know, and stuff. Because the treatment, the radiotherapy was three was sixteen treatments over the over working days, so three weeks and a day. And uh, in the olden days, when people, um, I mean, my mother had radiotherapy and she was marked up with pens and and she couldn't wash, you know, because because you wash off the ink. Uh, whereas what they did with me is they put these two tiny, tiny little um, tattoos, the little blue, little blue marks, and they're, they're they're on my chest, you know. So basically, that's what they, they line the machine up every day with those two, um, with those two marks on your front. And then once the machine's lined up, they can then when you flip over, it's easy for them to line up on the other side, you know because they, they sort of measure it from your shoulders and stuff. Anyway, that's all very boring. But that was a really good team of people. I, I always remember that being done. And now and I remember this woman's nurse, she says, all right, we're going to do this. And she just went, dick. And I went, oh, what's that? I just said, stay still. And I was, I was like, what are you doing? Oh, it's your tattoos. So it, it was just kind of done. They just kind of got on with it. Um, so then that, that, so that was the next thing that happened. I had this radiotherapy um which was uh, yeah as i say 16 treatments used to just going every day um i felt much much tighter from that than i ever did from any of the chemo profound really and that was that was in the september 2001 um and then in the beginning of october 2001 i went to see the, went to see the main man after i'd finished all that and he said just go home I'll see you in 3 months you know it's literally that that's the way it works you know they, he said you, you know you, you know your blood counts are normal everything's fine so just go home get 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 well take your time and um and i was i was tired until december i mean just tired after all that because you know there's all that thing of getting over the treatments but also just the thing of getting through it all emotionally and mentally you know and uh i'd had this thing when i came out of hospital i'd been prescribed these sleeping tablets just a month's worth and uh i was very clever with them i used them um I, I, they lasted they lasted me about four months i was asked to take them every day because when you're in hospital you know, you're an inpatient. Anyone that's been, you know, anyone that's been in hospital, been an inpatient. It's, you just get, it's very hard to sleep when you go home because you just, you've just been in a bed all the time. You know, it's very hard to get into a kind of routine. And I wasn't really, couldn't really go out a lot and stuff. And I wasn't, I was hardly gigging at all or anything at that time. Um, and so for that next six months, was this kind of thing of, um, of. Um, yeah just getting well and then i remember the the nhs uh sorry the the, the dss the, the welfare doctor came to see me i remember him i was living in his house at the time and we, i was living up like five flights of stairs i remember him coming up and he was out of breath you know and i was fine and uh, i was i was waiting to be signed off you know i was waiting for them to say you don't you know we'll sign you off now and um 
and he wouldn't sign me off. He said, I'm just going to give you another six months. You need another six months. You need a year, really. And I was like really kind of confused by it. But I was, I, but I appreciated it, you know. And in hindsight, he was right. Um, because you just don't quite realise, you know, what it takes out of you and, and how long it really does take to, to recover properly. And and it actually took a lot longer than that. But with it, you know, after a year I was I was definitely, you know, getting better. Then I got through my one year, got through my two years, not you know, got through three years, still okay. Um I'd kind of recovered after the two years, I'd sort of been through this weird period of um of kind of exhaustion really. And I kind of just started to get the other side of that. Had some very strange long-term sort of side effects of things. Uh, more men- they were more mental really than physical. Um, and then got four years, and then in the fifth year, which was getting past the five years, is a, is a really big, big milestone. I had this weird thing. I had this kind of block station tube. It was very, very painful. And um, and. It, same time these two big glands came up in my neck on my right side um and they were really big and they were just underneath my jaw and they weren't sore and they were up and they were up for ages and eventually i had to go i mean i was going back every six months anyway uh, no I was, I was on the year i was at the no I was at six months by then there's two years Two years at three months. Sorry, two years at three months. One, I think two years at four months and one year at six months and then yearly. And I was just about to get to my yearly. And I had to ring them up and say, I've, I, I need to see somebody. I've got this thing in my neck. And, and they, you know, I went to see the, um, someone in the team and they were like, you know what we're going to have to do, don't you? And I was like, yeah, there's no other way there's no other way we can know what's going on you know you you you're asymptomatic you but you're asymptomatic when you were when you were first diagnosed 5 years ago you need so and this was like the this was awful this was the worst i think it's the worst i ever felt during any of it psychologically because i just had this guy you know ringing in my head this guy saying this thing will come, will come back after, the, you know, and I was like, this is it. You know, I've got these things in my neck and why are these glands there at all, you know? They're not painful. They're just these benign big glands, really, two of them really like. So anyway, I had them taken out and um, went in, you know, went into, went into there. The operation came round and I had to wait two weeks to get the results, you know. Uh, which was the longest two weeks ever. And anyway, I went in, and it was great. I saw the same guy. As soon as I sat down, he went, they're fine. You know, he made a real point of very quickly telling me that they were fine, you know. He says, there's nothing benign. Just must just be down to, we don't know. But you're fine. Everything's fine. Your chest x-ray's fine. The, your bloods are fine. Everything's fine. Come see you in a year. You know, he said, we're not going to change anything with this. Just unless you have any other problems, see you in the year. And that was the first time after that meeting when I genuinely didn't think about it anymore. So I'd spent five years every day thinking about it. And the thing that he said to me in that meeting, the very last one, I said, oh, you know, 
oh, this is great. Um, and he said, because I've had this thing hanging over me because of what um, this consultant has said. And he said, no, no, that's not quite, he said, that's not quite right. He said, you know, what, uh, I think maybe, have you misunderstood? I said, no, this is what he said. He said, no, 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 no. What it is, is it, we expect, if you're gonna, if you're gonna fall out of remission, having the set of circumstances that, that you were in, if you're gonna fall out of remission, it was going to happen within two years, and he said we've we've never expected that. Certainly after when you got after you two years, and and the way you recovered, we'd never expected that. You know, and this was a real surprise to us. He said, "I can see now why you were so so anxious about this." And when I went home after that um, after that operate, you know, when I had, had the operation, got over it, and then gone and seen the consultant and had this conversation. After that, I never, I never thought about it again. Really, it was that thing of I. That was when I genuinely thought I, I am what they'd class as a, uh, as a cure. I mean, they, they, after after five years, you, they sort of they they tentatively say that anyway. But ten years is the big one. So after ten years, I didn't have to go back. Um, I. I then went on to this long-term trial, you know, which I'm still on, um, and it's been very helpful. And then I, I'm in a very lucky position. If I ever have any problems, um, I can ring them up and go and see somebody, you know. Um, so, uh, so things like the staging thing. If you, you know, stage three is below the diaphragm, so a lot of people get things around their liver, and they, they get when they when they're scanned, they get in their in your groin. You have these glands in your groin at the top of your legs, you know. And stage four is in is in the bones, you know, is in the bone marrow, and they find it inside the bone marrow. And and I'd had a you know bone bone marrow biopsy and all that stuff right at the beginning, and, and that was clear. But um, the, stage four. Um, stage 4B uh, patients with Hodgkin's can still make full recovery and get into remission and stay in remission which is incredible with the treatment you know um, but yeah so that's kind of um, that was kind of it really the, 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 that last sort of thing of having those thing glands in the neck and then having to go in and have the operation and stuff was the, was the last really big um the big thing with it you know after that i just kind of um just started to get on with my life you know and um and then you know different things were changing in my life and different relationships and so I ended up in a position like i got my job in 2006 where i work now i was i was well out of you know treatment and illness and everything by 2006 so it was never it was not something that anybody even you know I work with no, no doesn't know anything about that side of me people that knew me then you know um, know about it but people I've got to know since don't know anything about this and, and obviously we've, we're in 2022 now and you know my my thing is if I was to get ill again they class it as a new disease now they, they don't class it as a remission um, it's uh, once you get beyond 10 years you know that it, it, it's not a remission it's what's called a, a new disease you know so uh, the problem i have is is i can't have some of those drugs again you know because they're so toxic they're really not good for you but i made a full recovery in lots of senses um, i mean one of the funniest ones which i will share with you um is the fertility thing you know i was very lucky 
that I uh, when I when I when I was when I was down for the high dose, the thing I was told, they said, "Oh, it's really sorry, you know, you know, you you, you haven't, you didn't, you weren't able to be part of that study, and um, you you do have to store semen." Sorry, this is very grim, but uh, sort of a bit graphic. But that you you are encouraged, and as a, and I was twenty nine at the time, I was encouraged, you know, um, at, you know, to to store, and they keep it for you for as long as you want, and that's at St Mary's Hospital, it's another part of the South Manchester group down in in Manchester. St Mary's is where they do all that treatment and stuff. So I went there before uh, I got before I started my treatment, and I had to uh, store some. And um, that was, uh, I was quite poorly then and um, had quite bad counts, you know, it's very common. But luckily, you know, there was some something that they could store. But I used to go back every year. And um, in 2000, I think it was 2004 or five, can't remember, one of those years, I went, I went to have a sample done. And you gotta have the sample done, and you know whatever, and and uh, they have a quick look under the microscope, and um, and at the time she said, yeah, I can't see anything. See you in a year, and I was like, all right. And then about three days later, I had a, uh, had a phone message on my answer phone, and uh, it was, oh, it's blah blah from whatever. Can you please ring us urgently? So I did, and uh, she said, oh, we found one alive, you know, and I was like, one. She said, "Yeah, so you're gonna need to, if you're, you know, if you have a partner and stuff, and uh, blah blah blah, you need to be make sure you're aware of the fact that, you know, that you're not um, sterile, as far as we're concerned anymore." She said, "And if you come back in a year, we're likely to see quite a change," and, and they did. So I was very lucky in that respect. Um, that I ended up not that didn't affect me so I, I kind of took that as a really positive thing because I think you look at how you heal you know everybody's different and um, I kind of took that as a thing of like you know I've healed I healed well in all the other ways um, I you know my chest if I have a chest x-ray it, it still looks like I've got pneumonia because of the scarring because I have such a big sort of disease in the chest but generally you know, I mean, I stopped smoking and I have good chest capacity and stuff, and um, and then things like that. You know, that healed, and that they kind of said, "Oh, you ninety-five percent chance of of being of being sterile." It's pretty. Oh, they said it's probably a little bit higher than that, really, but but you know that would that wasn't the case. So I kind of I viewed that as a really positive thing. So it's that you get to know a lot about yourself and about how your kind of body works and about how you know, your sort of view of your body uh and it was something i grappled with psychologically for a long time because i had this kind of juxtaposition of like oh my body's let me down because i've got this malignancy thing you know why did you do this to me body why did you do this to me genes um, and that's another thing i did go and see a geneticist and had a long conversation with uh, somebody there at St Mary's again. That's all done at St Mary's, and because of the family history thing, and we didn't know anything about my dad then. So now going back to speak to them, maybe it's a slightly different picture. But the thing that my father uh, had, my dad was really healthy guy, um, was like you know fell runner and stuff, and lost a lot of weight uh, in his fifties and got really fit and. Um, 
didn't didn't drink at all. Didn't smoke. He did. Yeah, he had a few cigarettes and stuff, but he didn't smoke like smoke, smoke. But um, yeah, got this AML thing. This. Uh, Acute myeloid uh, leukemia, which is awful, and he had he had the worst, he had, he had like the, what they call dismal outcome, the the, the worst type. This kind of three types of it. It's, 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 a, it's a, there's no cure for it. It's an awful disease. Um, and when I spoke to somebody in his consult in, in his consultant team about having had the lymphoma, she was kind of saying, oh, they're kind of there's a, there's a connection genetically you know so the, maybe as there's a different picture there but um it um well having i originally been see the geneticist there was they, she said it was just a coincidence what i had in relation to what my brother and my mother had had you know but um what my brother had had wasn't a coincidence in relation to what my mother had so um and there's other cancers obviously that in in relation to having had a mother who's had breast cancer there's other cancers that that um, offspring, siblings, and stuff have to be aware of, and there is a percentage chance of this. Or if I had a daughter, all that kind of stuff, it's quite complicated. I mean, they know probably a lot more. This was, I mean, this was back in 2006 or five, or maybe, yeah, it was in that. A lot happened in that mid noughties period because it was a, it was a lot of closure for me at that time and again like i said at the beginning you know having uh, the after that i started to move on from it kind of defining me but there was this thing these two sides had healed really well but i was sort of disappointed in my body at being ill in the first place you know and that might sound farcical you, you know no, not in control of being ill but you know, psychologically you know you kind of you could sort of lose a little bit of confidence in your own body because of these major significantly things happen to you you know and this was one of the conversations i was having with somebody recently and having thought a lot about that and, and, and had some psychotherapy about it and stuff and, and kind of got beyond it just to sort of, um, it, you have to try and view or frame things in a slightly different way. So, um, but anyway, that's that kind of story. That's the end of that story, really. Not a drum story. And uh, the thing that started off at the beginning of this, because I, I had my drumsticks, I had my drumsticks in my hand, but my practice pad is, is not out because I was using the the snare stand for this gig the gig i've been doing the last few weeks this disco thing i'm using a different kit using the kit that i normally use for touring so it's like uh, it's quite nice just having a whole separate kit with a whole separate hardware bag and everything it's still sonors the same kit but but um but i'm not didn't have a practice pad and i was like i normally have the practice pad you know and normally tapping away with it. i don't know i was like oh well i'm not doing a drum podcast this week so but um, anyway, you know, if you wanted to, if anybody has a similar experience or if you um, are concerned about anything or whatever, not that I know much about anything, but you wanted to get in touch, you could always drop me a line. Most people who listen to this know me on um, Instagram. You can drop me a message on there or um, drop me an email, drummyd. That's drummyd with an IED, drummy. Double M I E D, D R U double M I D. I don't know. I just don't spell it all in the first place. It's farcical. Uh, at gmail.com if you want to send me an email. Um, yeah. So that's kind of it, really. Um, something a bit different and a bit long. Sorry about that. I just realised how long I've been gibbering on. Um, I hope we didn't jump around too much. Um, 
and there's probably loads I've missed in that uh, as well but um, it was a bit of a journey and, and in the end it was a year the, the treatment lasted almost exactly a year because I started my chemo in, in 20 2000 and 00, zero in 2000 sorry um, in October and uh, and I went for this consultation 3rd of October 20, 2001 um, that was when he said go home see you in 3 months you know the last treatment I had was um, the 17th of September um, last radiotherapy still got my little book as well I had a little um, got this little appointment book again it's a superstitious thing I've always kept that you know um, so yeah kind of um, yeah superstition is strange isn't it anyway so that's the story um, next month we'll be back to normal with some normal drumming things Got the last disco classical gig this year on Friday, and then Dubai in um, going to Dubai in January with that for a show. I'm hoping they're going to do a few more shows next year because it's finally that project. Uh, you know, the rhythm's it's a really good rhythm section. It's the uh, they're using now. It's being promoted through a different promoter now. It's through Raymond Gubay thing, which is Sony Music, and and so they have a, they have fixers that hire in the orchestral players. So it's always different now. So there's always a re we always need to rehearse on the day. Um, but uh, three new singers and a singer we've been using, um, and that's that's all playing itself in nicely. So. Hopefully, consistently, there'll be the singers will be consistent, and the rhythm section will be consistent, and it will just be a matter of um, rehearsing with the with the orchestral players on the day, which is what happens, you know. Um, I bought myself some some of the Shure in ear uh, monitors, four two fives, I think they're called. They're really good. The, the dual the dual driver ones. I sort of treated myself because I've been using some other things for that gig and I hadn't really been enjoying the sound so I wanted something a bit better quality and that seemed like the most the, the best priced I was going to go for some moldy because I've got read audio I've got my molds but they're 800 pounds you know and and I couldn't really justify 800 pounds but um, the sure ones are four times less than that it's 200 220 quid basically uh, and you can replace the, the sure ones. You, at least you can replace all the bits. You can get, you can replace the lead. You can replace each of the drivers because you can buy all the components individually. You know, and they fit really well in the ears and they're sealed, and and they sound amazing. You know, we had this really good new, um, can't remember the name of it. Really good new monitoring system, and you, basically you have full control. You've got your subgroups, so you've got your groups of different parts of the ensemble. But then I've got everything. I can put the bass, all the two different guitars, the different keyboards, the violins, the cellos, everything. I can mix it all myself, you know. So I had a really, really good sound. Um, so that's yeah, that's gonna that's kind of yeah, the end of that. And then um, a few bits and bobs of other things. But yeah, be back to some normal drummy stuff next time. Um, Hope you enjoyed that and it didn't go on too long. But um, take care and uh, bye for now.